So we began a series uh, two weeks ago that uh, where, where we, we told you a couple weeks ago that we really felt like God had refined our mission statement, that, that uh, we had a really good mission statement, very theologically accurate, but that it had served us for a season, and not that God would change what we were about, but that God would refine it, that we have a specific role to play uh, in this community. And so the, the statement is now equipping people for kingdom release, and I imagine if you've been here, this is the third week we've talked about it, you probably, it probably beginning to stick. Anybody remember it before I said it? Two of you. Okay, cool. <laughs> we got two more weeks of this, so hopefully by the end uh, we'll, we'll get there. But the idea behind this is like that, that we exist to equip people for the sake of kingdom release in the community. And we talked last week about what we mean by uh, kingdom release, that every disciple is called to participate in bringing the kingdom to bear wherever they are. We've talked about that a lot of times, but I want to reiterate it. Uh, what this means is that if you are a disciple, a disciple of Jesus, your job is to engage in the things of the kingdom, to do the ministry of Jesus wherever you happen to be. And so you do these things because, because you're a disciple, because they're a marker of God's rule and reign, that as far as God rules and reigns in your life, when you surrender your life to Jesus, you say, you're in charge, and to the degree that that happens in you, it happens through you. So you participate in that. We pray for healing. We demonstrate mercy and compassion. We work for justice. We do deliverance, all these, these wonderful things. One of the challenges, though, as you begin to engage in kingdom ministry that I find, one of the challenges is finding a context to live this out. If you've never done it before, if you've never lived your life in a kingdom way, a kingdom-oriented way, where you intend to bring to bear the kingdom wherever you are, it's hard to find a context, right? Like, at some level, you're like, if this is, you know, I'll do this whenever I happen to see the place where it's supposed to happen. The hard part is, is when we create training environments like this, where we teach you how to do it, your life typically doesn't really mirror that, right? Most of the time in your life, nobody walks up to you and says, hey, uh, I've been struggling with this demon in my life and I really need it to be cast out if you could just do that for me. <laughs> that's not, at least that's not my personal experience. I've never run into somebody who's like, you know, if you could just heal the, the broken leg that I have, that would be fabulous. Typically, we have to like find a context for beginning to engage in these things. And I think it's sort of challenging, right? Like we pray for these things at the end of every service, right? We make space and we pray for each other. If you're new here, that's what's going to happen at the end. We're going to make space to pray. So we do this all the time in this environment. And really, the stuff we do in our worship gathering is designed to train you, to equip you. Like we gather to worship just like we just did. And it's supposed to train you to be able to worship in your real life. I don't know if you know that. I mean, you don't have to play an instrument. But at some level, there's when you worship musically, there's this heart connection with God that's supposed to happen. We find music is a fairly simple way to do it. There are other ways to do it. But creating a heart-level connection with God, wherein God can, can connect with you. And so we do that here so that out there you can do it, right? And if you get, like, I hate to use the word proficient. It sounds so mechanical. But if you're proficient at, like, if you're able to engage in worship musically, 
you will then find yourself eventually able to engage in worship without music. You'll find yourself on the sidewalk and just overcome with gratitude, and there's a heart-level exchange, right? Something about your life then begins to encounter God. And so a lot of the stuff we do here, worship, message, we talk about opening the Bible and seeing what God has to say. We do these things as practice for, for the real game, which is through the, the course of your week. And we do all that stuff to equip you, that that's what we're trying to do. We do it here because it's a safe place to learn, right? I will, I'll just tell you this much. Nobody is going to freak out if you try to share a word from God with them, or probably nobody will, if you try to share a word from God to, with them, and it's wrong. Like, the way that we learn is by trying, right? We learn to pray for the sick by trying, and we go, well, that didn't work. Let's try something different. We learn to, to hear God's voice by trying, and so we've created a space wherein this is, a, this is it's safe for you to try these things. And so that's the idea, but then when we begin to engage in our real lives, there's no context for it. Nobody readily asks you for a word from the Lord until you're really doing it all the time. Then people come up to you and they say, what's God saying to you, right? Some of you have done this a number of times and you've had Eventually, people get to know that you're the one that hears from God, which is a little twisted, but it's a good start. But people then begin to ask you, if you pray for a number of people out and see people get healed, then somebody's got a sickness or a, a, an injury, and they're like, hey, will you, I want you to pray for me, right? You've had that, Gerald's had that experience. Gerald's like, I'm not going to do it, you do it. You just grab somebody else, and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you're like, that's okay, put your hand right here and say this right? But, but finding a context for beginning to do it in your real life is difficult. And so what I want to do today is try to begin to give you a little bit of a context, a little bit of a place to start. And we're going to look at, at an encounter Jesus has in the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark 12. We're going to begin in verse 28. But let me explain while you're turning. If, if you need a Bible, there's stacks upon stacks upon stacks, stacks on stacks, yeah, of Bibles here in the front. Uh, I'll edit that out of the recording later. Um, <laughs> my joke a minute, man. We're, we're going to begin in verse 28. Now, let me explain sort of what's happening uh, in Mark 12. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, some of you guys know who these are, but these are two different Jewish groups. They have some different theological understandings of who God is. Uh, and they're arguing and they're trying to trap Jesus. And each of them sort of fails right? Like, Jesus is this sort of master wordsmith, and so, like, they ask him these trapping questions, and Jesus is like, aha, I found the third option that you didn't think of, right? Like, he just sort of, like, he just escapes their traps, and so they get to this point, and this expert in the law, this guy uh, comes up to test Jesus, and here's what, it be beginning in verse 28 of chapter 12, here's what we read. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the Jewish Shema. This is the prayer that they pray twice a day, every day. This, is the, this would be the primary, right? And Jesus says this, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Like, you know, the lawyer's like, okay, I'm going to validate you, Jesus. I'm going to put my little commentary on, I'll put my stamp of approval on what you just said. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This passage is what people tend to refer to as the great commandment, right? We have the great commission, go and make disciples. The great commandment, which is love God and love your neighbor. The teacher of the law sees that Jesus has got a good answer to, to which is the greatest commandment. And so, so he, uh, he says, well, um, he asks him which, or gives him a good answer to the, the other two guys, but then he says, well, which is the greatest commandment? So this is my tribe. Which is the greatest commandment? Now, he may be referring to two different things here. He may be referring to the Ten Commandments, right? The tablets, the Ten Commandments. Which is the, be- the biggest, the best of the Ten Commandments? Or, more likely, he's referring to the 613 precepts that you, the Jews had created in order to uphold the Ten, right? So we have the Ten Commandments, but in order to not get close to violating those, we create 613 other rules that if you follow these 613, you won't get anywhere close to violating the 10. Let me give you an example. One example is that you, the commandment is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In order to keep from ever violating that, they said, well, what is the Sabbath? And, and how, do we, how do we know if we've worked? Well, you can only walk this far. You can only take this many steps. If you have to bend over and pick this up, that's work. You can't do that. They created 613 other rules. And so it's quite likely that this lawyer is saying, which of the 613, which one of those is the biggest? Which one of those is the best? And this is sort of a landmine question if you think about it. Like, he's asking Jesus basically to set himself up to fail, right? This is just one more trap. If I say one of these is the greatest, then... I'm saying the rest of them are not the greatest. And how do you decide which of God's commandments you can, you know, sort of like have to be set in stone, pun not intended, and which of these has to be, you know, that you could sort of like let go? But Jesus says, well, it's not really one thing. It's kind of two things. So the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He says, but the other half of that is, Love your neighbor as yourself. And in response, you know, the the lawyer's like, all right, that works. That's pretty good. That kind of covers it all. Apparently, Jesus is happy with this, and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So we who want to be bearers of the kingdom hear this, and this should strike you. Like, you're not far from the kingdom. That's where I want to be. I want to be not far from the kingdom, right? That should strike you. Like, what about this response was so key that Jesus says right there, that's kingdom. That thing you just said there, that's kingdom. If I'm a kingdom person, I want to go, wait, 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 wait. Jesus Jesus just said something important. Tell me, I got to know, what, what did he just say there? Look again at verse 32. 
He says, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. So far, so good. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. What this lawyer says is, of course, loving God is primary. Of course, that's it. Of course, that's where we start. But then he says, loving your neighbor is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. If you're familiar with the Old Testament system and the way that Jewish worship works, offer, burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's sort of the essence of your worship. This is how you worship. You show up, you bring your stuff, they set it on fire. Fairly simple. Right? I mean, maybe we should try that sometime. Just next week, just show up, we'll set some stuff on fire. And then we'll call it lunch. Um, but he says, these are essentially the religious activities of the day. This is how you participate in this religion, is you bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. This is showing up to church. This is putting money in the basket. This is reading your Bible every day. This is having a quiet time every day. This is doing your Sabbath stuff, which, by the way, I'm like the stories I'm hearing from you guys that are doing Sabbath, like I'm loving it. I'm loving it for myself too, but, uh, but your, Sabbath, your Sabbath stuff has been really cool to hear about. But like this is, this is the religious stuff, right? So here's the equivalent. It's like we do, we do our Bible reading and show up to church and we, we drop money in the basket, we pray, we do all these things. And what he's saying is God is more concerned with how you love your neighbor than all the rest of that. He's more interested in how you love your neighbor than he is your religious activities. More interested. Now make sure you hear this right. It's not saying that God doesn't care about those other things. He doesn't say, well, never mind about those things. It all just matters how you, how you treat your, your uh, neighbors. Every time that a, a dichotomy or a, a choice like this comes up in Scripture, what God says is you should have participated in the former without neglecting the latter. You should have participated in the greater thing without neglecting the lesser thing. It's not that God's saying, well, now that you love your neighbor, forget all about all the rest of that stuff. But he's saying, order it rightly. It's not that we abandon church attendance or sacrificial giving or Bible reading in order to, to love our neighbors. I've heard people say that. It's like, well, you know, God's really only concerned with how I love my neighbors, so I don't really come to church anymore and you know, I don't really participate in all that organized religion stuff. It's not that God is saying we can abandon that. It's saying this is the greater thing that we're after, but the lesser thing serves the greater thing. All the stuff we do here goes to serve how you love your neighbor. And let me tell you, if you actually press into loving your neighbor, especially the ones that don't like you, especially the ones that are weird, the ones that have way too much stuff on their porch, that's me, by the way, the, the ones that, like, don't take care of their yard, also me. The, one, the ones who, you know, that you just look at their house and you go, I'm not going over there. If you actually press into that and begin to demonstrate the kingdom there, what you're going to find is you need a gathering like this. Is that you need other people to lift you up. If you press into missional living for six days of your week, that seventh day you're like, there's nothing else I can do but go be with people that will encourage me. There's nothing else that will help because you'll just end up beat down and depressed. What I find is people who have 
withdrawn from church gatherings and being with other believers because they're loving their neighbors, when you really dig into what they're doing, they're not actually missional at all. They're just sort of like they coexist with their neighbors. They don't press into the kingdom with their neighbors. They just coexist. They're not very missional because as soon as you become missional, as soon as you lean into this stuff, what you're going to find is it'll beat you down pretty good and you need somebody to lift you up and pray for you, pull the arrows out of your back. That's what happens. Now, this comes also as a confrontation of what tends to happen in churches, right? Like we tend, those of us that love these gatherings, you love being here, you love worshiping with music, you love all the stuff that we do. What tends to happen in this is we tend to believe that once we've come to church, we've worshiped and we got really into it, right? We're jumping, hands up, we're really into it. And, you know, then we, we sit quietly and listen and we write notes and we take notes and underline, we bring a pen and underline the stuff in our Bibles. We, we, like, we do all the stuff, we tend to believe that those practices are the end of following Jesus, that we've done it. Like, once we've done that, you know, I, I went to church on Sunday. That's how I grew up. I went to church on Sunday. What else do you want from me? Like, I did my thing. I got my points. God's up there with the book. He checked my name this week. We're in good shape. But what Jesus is saying is the stuff of the kingdom happens as you love your neighbor, that when we practice praying for healing here, it's just practice for you to pray for healing for your neighbor. When we practice being generous here, it's really practice for you to be generous with your neighbor. This stuff is supposed to play out in your real life. And in this statement, Jesus does something that's so critical. He creates a context for sending his disciples out. He creates a place. He says, you know, yeah, release the kingdom wherever you are. That's basically what Jesus says all over the place, right? But he says, why don't you start where you live? I think if Jesus was here, if Jesus was standing where I'm standing, first of all, I'd be on my face. But secondly, if Jesus was here preaching, he would say, why don't you start with those people closest to where you live? Like, if you're going to actually live into a real Christian existence, if you're actually going to be a disciple of Jesus and live into that, what does it look like for you to start where you live? I mean, you go there every day. You start your day there, unless you work overnight. But that's a technicality. What would it look like for you to engage those around you? What would it look like for you to sort of step out of your comfort zone and get to actually know the people who live around you? You know that's not a very American thing to do anymore. When I was a kid, we played on the street. Everybody knew everybody. Other people looked out for you. I got in trouble by other people's parents. Anybody else? Right? Now, if some other, if some other person's parents correct you, well, we're going to have a word with them because they're not your parents. I believe Jesus would say, why don't we start where we are? Where do you live? As you think about it, I mean, some of you live in widely different places. Like some of you live in an apartment. And maybe for you to begin to live into this is to get to know the people that live on your floor or in your building. For those of you who live on campus, like some of you guys live in, in dorm housing, I think it would be the same kind of way, right? Like maybe, maybe we actually get to know those around us uh, in the building. But some of us live in actual neighborhoods. What would it look like for you to get to know the people on your block? 
What would it look like for you to actually even know their name? So how do we go about releasing the kingdom among our neighbors? Let me give you just a couple of suggestions. First of all, start at home. Start at home. Don't be one of those Christians that lives one way outside of the house, but as soon as the door closes, you live a different way with your kids, with your parents, with your family. I've seen way too many of those. If you, if you look around, you see all these things. I don't know if you've, if you've kept up with how many different pastors have had just wildly blown up lives. And nobody sees it coming except the family. Part of this is the fact that, like, we live this separate existence. I come out of the door, and now i am got my pastor coat on, and see, I can do no wrong. The problem is, is those secret places in your life, they always find a way to come out. Be the kind of person that lives the same way inside your house as you do outside. What if we started praying for those inside our house first? What if we began to have, like, times where, hey, I'm just going to pray for you every day. I'm just going to lay hands and pray pray for you every day that God would bless you. Start at home. Secondly, get to know those who live near you. How many of you actually know all the neighbors on your block? A couple. Kind of know all the neighbors on your block. Now, when you say you know all the neighbors on your block, do you know all their names? Or do you actually kind of know things about them? Do you kind of know their hopes and dreams? Do you know the things that make them tick? Do you know the fears that they live in? Maybe we could begin to press into knowing our neighbors as opposed to just knowing their names. For a lot of us, I mean, I used to borrow Jay Pathak's grid. The, the, some of you know the grid I'm talking about, The Art of, the Art of Neighboring. It's a good book. If you haven't read it, you should read it. I gave... I think I loaned a copy to you. I have a couple of copies. Um, there's a grid in there where he says, put your house in the middle, and then the, ni- the eight nearest homes to you around the outside. It looks like a big pound sign. Okay? Put your house in the middle, and the eight nearest homes, and then I want you to write, first of all, the names of the people that live in those homes. So if you think, you know, like, here's your house, and the neighbors all look like this. Put the names of the people, and then put the things that make them tick. Like some, or, or put something that you know about them, like works at the hospital or uh, has three kids that are all grown or something that you couldn't know by driving past their house. Like, you know, you can't put like have a yellow car or something because you just see that. Has a dog because I can hear it. And then the third thing is like, what are their hopes and dreams? And I, I used to pass that out when we were in small groups and have people fill it out. And it's the, kind of the grid of shame. Because for most of us, when you start trying to write down the names of the eight nearest neighbors to you, you start going, what's that guy? He's up at the top of the hill. I don't really know his name, but he's weird. Right? Like, you start doing this and you go, and it's really just a grid of shame because you realize you can't even put the names of your neighbors. But, like, what if we begin to know those that live around us? How do you do that? How do you get to know those who live around you? I mean, we're in a season, how many of you like to have bonfires in your backyard, right? We're in a season where you can invite your neighbors to the backyard and set things on fire and cook processed meat, and that's, a, that's perfectly acceptable. What if you did that with other people? Like, maybe you're a football fan. Maybe you're going to watch a football game at your house, and guess what? The neighbor across the street is going to watch the same football game at their house. If you look out the window, you can probably see their TV, right? 
What if you did that together? No agenda. I'm not trying to like lead you to Jesus. But what if, what if we just begin to engage our neighbors and say, like, hey, you're going to watch this game. Let's watch it together. Why don't we hang out? Why don't we have dinner together? What if you had like pasta at your house? Because pasta's cheap. You just always had pasta at your house and we saw your neighbors and you had, he's like, hey, we're going to have spaghetti tonight. Why don't you come over and have dinner with us? No agenda. I'm not going to try to like cram Jesus down your throat. But like, what if we just got to know our neighbors? You know, there's some real benefits to that. That's why neighborhood watches work. If you know your neighbors, you know who doesn't belong in the neighborhood. If you know the rhythms of your neighbor's lives, you know when they leave to go to work, when somebody's coming in the garage at a different hour, you're like, wait a minute. The safest neighborhoods are the ones where everybody knows each other. Almost like Jesus knew that. What if we got to know our neighbors? And the third thing that I would, I would want to suggest is after you get to know your neighbors, you begin at home, you get to know your neighbors, be the chaplain of your neighborhood. Be the chaplain of your neighborhood. You know what a chaplain does? Have you been in the hospital? You know what a chaplain does? A chaplain is the guy that shows up and just prays for you. Doesn't even know you. Just shows up. You're in the hospital. They come by, and they're like, I just would love to care for you and pray for you. Can I pray for you? There's no obligation. Now, when I say be the chaplain of your neighborhood, don't get a hat that says neighborhood chaplain. You just do the job, Right? You just show up, and when somebody's like, oh, man, my mom's in the hospital, it's like, oh, wow, can we, can we pray right now for her? And is there anything you need? Can we help you, you know? Like, can we care for your kids while you go to the hospital? Can we take care of anything? Oh, I bet you have a really hard, like, right now you're having a hard time keeping your, you know, your out, outside your house cleaned up. Can we just do that for you? Can we cut your grass? Okay. There it is. Um, but, but what if you became the chaplain of your neighborhood? Here's what I can envision. I can envision that if we actually engage in this, we'll begin to see our neighborhoods transformed. People will begin to see that you're a kingdom person. You'll be, I mean, the chaplain thing will come later. Maybe they'll buy you a hat. You could put your own hat on. But can you imagine if people began to know that your house was a safe one? Can you imagine if people began to know that if I need prayer, you're the one I go to? That you're the one that helps provide care for the neighborhood? You know what I can envision? I can envision these little neighborhoods, these little blocks all over town where there's somebody from the vineyard hanging out in the middle and caring for everybody in the neighborhood. And there's 30 or 40 or 50 of them all over town. And that our city would be different because we did that. Can you see that? Can you imagine that? Like, I don't know how many people are sitting here. Like, we could do a rough count. But, like, if every one of your neighborhoods began to look different because you were there, if you actually leaned into getting to know the weird guy on the corner and the lady, in, you know, across the street who has a lot of cats, Right? Somebody moved in across the street from us and put a sign up that says crazy cat lady. I haven't got to meet you yet, but <laughs> you've branded yourself already. Can you imagine what that would look like? Can you imagine? What would it look like? I think we would see the city transformed. 
I think we'd see all the state transforming. I mean, there's some of you that aren't even from this city. I think we'd see other cities transformed. I think we'd have little churches, these little neighborhood churches, and it wouldn't be that you went to school and became a pastor, but you just sort of unofficially were the pastor of this neighborhood. People came to know Jesus, and you had these little neighborhood churches. Can you imagine? Can you see that? I mean, some of you have heard me talk about this bee house idea. I won't unpack that here, but this idea that we would have houses all over the city that were safe places where there's a neighborhood church in them, every one of them. It wouldn't look like, I mean, this doesn't look like a church either, but, you know. Can you imagine that? I think if we're successful at our mission of equipping people for kingdom release, if we're actually successful at this, what we see is that the city is transformed. And wherever you are, that you are a transformer of your neighborhood, that you're a transformer of whatever city you're a part of. That's why we do our classes. That's why we do all this stuff. Today we've got that class right after for how to hear from God. That's, that's part of what we do. How to pray for people. That'll be next month. How to share the gospel. That's the following month. We're going to have somebody come and help us walk around outside praying for people. So the treasure hunt is sort of a preliminary uh, for somebody that's coming in November, a guy by the name of Wade Coffey uh, from Zanesville. And we're going to teach you how to go about praying for people when it's weird. Because if it's not here, out there is a little bit weird. 